listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Appreciate that. It's so good to see y'all here this morning, and we've gathered uh, to sing praises to each other and to our Lord, and we come to open the Word of God. Um, this is God's Word. It's breathed out. He's speaking to us, and I'm amazed at the timing as we planned out months ago these sermons and these passages. I'm amazed at the timing because it, it seems like our world is stirred up. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in or if you grew up in church, but in the church that I grew up in, we talked about the second coming all the time. And now we don't talk about the second coming of Christ at all, it seems. Uh, we're so immersed in the here and now. Um, we, we talked about... Uh, uh, Ezekiel 38, and some people say that's what's happening in Russia now. I don't know that. Uh, we talked about a one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world religion, much like the Great Reset, by the way, if you've looked at that at all, and all of the plans of people around the world. Um, but thinking about the second coming back then, kept us in touch with um, living a, a simple life. It kept us in touch with the possibility of Jesus Christ coming back at any moment. And we're trying to sort all of that out as we look at that text this morning and as we think about world events and we're trying to figure out, are we facing Armageddon? Is the return of Christ upon us? Um, and it could be, but even if it isn't, it should still be on our mind. And so as we look at Luke 12, I want you to think about this. It's only by thinking clearly about the future that we can live wisely in the present. It's only uh, when we think clearly about the future that we will live wisely in the present. And Jesus gives us some insight into the future from the text this morning. So Luke chapter 12, I want to begin reading in verse number 35. We've been going through verse by verse, um, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and this is where we've come to this morning. Verse 35 of Luke 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And he puts them in a, a setting. He wants them to understand a, a setting that maybe we can't relate to, but maybe we can um, move our way to relating to it. He said, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. He shifts from the servants. The master's not there. The master's going to be returning. Be ready when the master returns. But now he shifts to the master. This is so unusual. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. That's the master. When the master gets there, he will dress himself for service and have the servants recline at table, and he will come and serve them. He goes back to the master returning. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed be those servants. If he comes, if he comes at 10 p.m. or 2 a.m. or 4 a.m., whatever it is that he comes, 
And those, those servants are awake. Those servants will be blessed. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house and be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? So he's dealt with a faithful servant. Now he's dealing with a faithful steward. A steward is someone who has been given somebody else's resources to manage, manage for them. That's every one of us. Every single human being, the resources that they have came from God. If you're an unbeliever, everything that you have came from God. If you're a believer, everything that you have came from God and you are a steward. You're, you're not a creator, but, but everything that you have, the energy that you have, the air that you breathe into your lungs, the resources, the house that you own, God has given you that and he wants you to manage that a certain way. And so he said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household and give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed is the servant who has been given resources by the master, who has been given instructions by the master on how to use those resources. And he is using those resources in a way that the master said to use them. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, there we go again, right? The guy with the barns, he had a conversation with himself about himself and about his stuff. And he said to his soul, he's having that conversation. Beware of a conversation that you have with yourself. Beware of looking at a situation and thinking that you have the capacity to in and of yourself rationalize through that circumstance. We don't have all the data. And many times our reasoning processes can be faulty. But he says, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Certainly the master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him like a thief in the night. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's Jesus talking. That sounds rather violent. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Let me just walk through the text and try to break it down for you. First of all, we must go back and capture the, the few verses that we looked at last week. And we see the text is compelling us to anticipate a better kingdom. So the first thing we see is the anticipation of a better kingdom. Look at what uh, Jesus has said as he tries to get us to see that we live in a world of conflicting and competing kingdoms, right? 
He warns us about hypocrisy. There is a kingdom where hypocrisy is accepted. He warns us about covetousness. There is a kingdom where covetousness is accepted. There, there, he warns us about a kingdom where all we're worried about is what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and what we're going to put on. He, he tells us there is a kingdom where people are just anxious about everything and worried about everything that has nothing to do with eternity. We live in a kingdom where people believe that they are masters of their universe, that, that they are self-determinist. And we have told our kids even, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. We tell the lie, the one that dies with the most toys wins. None of that is true. And so we have found ourselves in this cycle that has left us angry and bitter and hollowed out. Because that's what we've made the essence of our life. Food, clothing, anxiety, worry, every imaginable advice and mantra and app and experience. That's the world that we live in. We live in a world of conflicting kingdoms and there has to be a better kingdom. There's just got to be a better kingdom. Would you please hear that this morning? This kingdom's messed up. All you got to do is look at what's going on. Just turn the news on. We're bombarded with just the evil and the wickedness and the death and, and the atrocities that are taking place and, and, and bombs are dropping. And well, we don't know. We don't know when it's going to come to our lives. Do you know how vulnerable? Do you know how amazing technology is? Do you know how efficient technology is? And do you know that all somebody needs to do is hack one thing or the other and you won't have electricity or water? Do you realize that? And we're, we're, we're okay, though. Everything's fine. We're paying a little more at the grocery store. We're paying a, a double for gas. And we're, we're really not worried about it. It's going to hit home. We're living in conflicting kingdoms, and there has to be a better kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, as he comes to the end of last week's passage, beginning in verse number 30, don't settle for this dysfunctional, life-draining, relationship-destroying kingdom. Look at verse 30. He says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. Those are the values of this kingdom. Uh, and, and your father knows that you need them. Verse, verse 31, instead seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. So there's a different kingdom. There's a better kingdom. So we should live in the anticipation of a better kingdom. Uh, we wring our hands and we worry because we think that this is the only kingdom. This kingdom's going down. This kingdom's going up in smoke. This kingdom is coming to an end. Don't settle for this kingdom. Seek his kingdom. He says in verse 32, it is the Father, Almighty God, who is sovereign over all things, who delights to give us the kingdom. Believe it or not, but there is a kingdom that is coming that is going to be fully realized when Jesus Christ returns. But you and I right now have the opportunity to, by his grace and through his finished work on the cross of Calvary, to enter into that kingdom. You can be a part of that kingdom right now. And we'll still be living in this, this, this kingdom that exists around us in the physical world. But there is an alternative kingdom that we in our hearts and in our minds can enter into and live with other people who are in the kingdom. The Father desires to give us the kingdom. It is possible. It is available. It is inhabitable right now. 
But he, he says in verse 33, he, he talks about selling possessions and give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. What is he saying? He's saying remove the chains of your enslaving desire for and the accumulation of possessions. The truth of the matter is this, that we don't own what we think we own. We don't own what we've worked so hard to accumulate. Quite frankly, it owns us. It just owns us. I remember back in the 90s, I, I one day pulled on a parking lot with an old Dodge that the transmission was slipping. I don't know how I made it to the car dealership and I drove off the parking lot with a, a, a brand new little Nissan pickup that wasn't much bigger than a go-kart. And I worked as hard as I could to make sure nothing happened to it until one day I parked in the parking lot over on 19 and 41 at Office Depot. And when I went in, the truck was in perfect condition. And when I came back, somebody had pushed a shopping cart into it and put a dent in it. And my world fell apart because that's what I was living for. I didn't own that truck. That truck owned me. And then one day I backed out to dump some trash across the street and the lid to the mailbox fell down and rested up against the truck. And as I was moving the trash out of the truck and it was bouncing up and down, the corner point on that mailbox was sliding up against the side of my truck and scratching it. And it took me three or four days to get over that. Jesus is essentially telling us the more you have, uh, the more you have to worry about. And the more that you have, the more of what you think you have really has you. And he's telling us to stop clenching so tightly with our fist to these things that are the values of the kingdom of this world that is going to burn up. He's telling us to let go of them, stop trying to squeeze life out of things that have no life in them and that will only bring death. And then finally, he says, we all have the opportunity to validate, to validate our kingdom of choice. That's verse 34. We all have the opportunity to validate our kingdom of choice. Verse 34 is essentially just a checkpoint. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, that is essentially, he's saying, look at where your treasure is, and that validates the kingdom that you believe is valuable. We all have treasure. We all have things of value that we will accumulate and use over time. Every one of us in this room right now this morning is subscribing to one of two kingdoms that are always vying for our treasure. If your heart is in this broken kingdom, that is where you will dump and waste your treasure. But if your heart is in the better kingdom, if it's in the eternal kingdom, then that is where you will invest your treasure. Jesus Christ is calling us to live for a better kingdom. The kingdom is here right now, and it will be fully realized when Jesus Christ returns. So let me just, just give you, as, as, as he's talking about the anticipation of a better kingdom, and he's going to talk about the anticipation of a better king, let me just give you a, a couple of insights into the return of 
Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago as a baby in a manger. He came as a suffering servant. Jesus Christ came to, to die, to be killed, to be murdered for your sin and for my sin, to be hung on a cross, to be placed in a tomb, and to ascend into heaven and to sit at the right, to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. But the Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And when he comes again, he's coming in all of his glory. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's coming as a warrior. He's coming as a conquering king. We currently live right now in the time between the first coming of Jesus Christ when he came as a baby and the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes as a king. The, the, the return of Christ is one of the primary promises in the New Testament. Over 300 times in the writings of the New Testament, in almost every book, it makes reference to the return of Christ. His return, listen to me carefully, his return will be personal. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us that Jesus Christ himself is coming back. Secondly, it will be visible. Revelation 1, 7 tells us that every eye will see. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us that his return will be glorious. Revelation 22, 20 tells us that it will be imminent. It can come at any time. It could come right now. And then we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 and 2 Peter 3, 10 and Revelation 3, 3, that his coming is going to be sudden. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come at a time when we don't expect it. Jesus Christ is coming back. The text is going to bear this out this morning that the people who are not ready will regret not being ready. And the people who are not ready will suffer eternal loss and destruction that is irreversible. And so I would ask you this morning, are you looking for, are you anticipating a better kingdom? Or are you deceived by this man-centered, life-draining, hope-killing kingdom of this world? There, there is a better kingdom kingdom. There is a better kingdom. Secondly, the text points out to us the anticipation of a better king, and that's where we find ourselves today in verse number 35 of the text. And he, he points out a faithful servant, he points out a serving master, and he points out for us this morning a faithful steward. The, the faithful servant, he, he tells him, he says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be dressed in readiness. How would that translate for us? Here's what he would say. Arrange the details of your life around the master's returning. He's saying these faithful servants have been left in charge of the master's business until the master comes back. And so they need not only to be doing what the master told them to do, but they need to be living in anticipation of the return of the master. Arrange the details of your life around the return of of the master. He has given them instruction. The exact time of his return is uncertain, but he's essentially saying, and if he was using today's vernacular, he would say, you need to have your sleeves rolled up. If there's a post that you are supposed to be manning, you need to man that post 
And if you're in charge of the lamps, you need to make sure that the lamps don't go dim so that people will get sleepy and tired and act like nothing is happening or nothing needs to be done. And if there's a fire in the fireplace, you don't need to let it die down. But the master could come at any moment. He needs to see the lamps bright. He needs to see the servants with their clothes completely starched and every hair in place. He needs to see the fire burning brightly in the fireplace as though they are ready for him to come. And he, he says this in, in the text, not only is there this, this action, but there is this anticipation. And the anticipation says, we are so ready that we're waiting and we're listening for the master to hear his footsteps walking down the sidewalk. And when he gets to the door and we hear his keys jingling and we think he's going to put the key in the door and open the door, unlock the door and open it himself, we open the door and he walks in and everything is ready for him. That's the picture that he's giving us. We're ready. We've been waiting for you. We are looking forward to you coming back. I'm with the apostle Paul. I think he said it. One of the guys in the Bible said it, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, please return. Please return. Soon we want you here. And then finally, he says, you need to be awake when he comes. So there's action, there is anticipation, and then there is this uh, awakeness. Eager anticipation of Christ's return may not matter now in this kingdom. It may not matter in this world. It may not put money in your bank. But it will matter when he returns. The point is this, of these faithful servants, the long Wait did not take the edge off of their vigilance. The long wait did not take the edge off of their vigilance. The second thing we see is the servant master. That's in 37B, the last half of 37. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What do we see? We see the master who took the form of a servant. I don't know what you believe. I don't know who you trust. But this is a good master. This is a good master. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that Jesus Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, left heaven where everything was just like he wanted it to be? He could speak, he could snap his fingers, and everything would happen just like he wanted it to. But Jesus Christ left heaven and came and robed himself in human flesh so he could walk around humanity and reveal what the Father was like to us. And then Jesus Christ served us by taking our sin upon himself and giving us his perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ served us by dying on the cross in our place for our sin. And he gives us eternal life. Jesus Christ served us by, by rising from the dead victorious over sin, guaranteeing that you and I can be victorious over sin. This is the, this is the servant master. I think of Vladimir Putin. If you study Russian history, which I haven't, but I've looked at a few snippets, and the Russians would send their young men out without having 
the 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 ammunition or the or the firearms that they needed even to defend themselves. It's, it's a tragic thing. Vladimir Putin makes his plans and his schemes, and he sends his men out, and he doesn't care if they die or not. <laughs> That's the way the world works. That's the way autocrats work. Right? That's the way the kingdoms of this world work. But there is a different kingdom with a different king. And it's, as opposed to the king sending us out to a slaughter that we deserve, we deserve to be slaughtered for our sin. We deserve to die for our sin. But our king went out in our place and died for us. Now, let me just give you a, a broader scope of that. There is no better king. But he's the only king. Do you understand that? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one mediator that can stand between sinful man and holy God, and it's Jesus Christ. The only hope for anyone anywhere is Jesus Christ. If you stay in this kingdom... You will die and be separated from God forever. But if you come into his kingdom, there is light. There is life. There is a relationship with him. His return will be worldwide. Everyone will see. Everyone will bow down. Everyone will confess. Everyone will be accountable. And according to verses 39 and 40, where he talks about the thief, he is going to shock the world when he returns the world will not be expecting him the world will be shocked if you know a thief is coming you will be ready and alert and you will protect yourself and your assets if you are not prepared when the thief comes you will suffer great loss if you are not prepared when jesus christ returns you will suffer great loss you see the servant master i would i would plead with you today to surrender your life to him i would plead with you today to believe in him you are you are in this kingdom that is the kingdom of this world that will that will waste your life away from the inside out and there is a good king who has given his life so that you might have life his kingdom is a kingdom of joy his kingdom is a kingdom of of nurturing relationships we'll see that in the text as we look at the steward who is supposed to be taking care of people or the unfaithful steward who refuses to take care of people his kingdom is a kingdom of love we move to verse 41 and we see in the anticipation of um, a better kingdom and the anticipation of a better kingdom we see the faithful steward verse 41 Peter asked the question, who are you talking to? Are you talking to just the disciples or are you talking to everybody? And Jesus then responds, who then is the faithful and wise manager? He, he responds to the question with, uh, with a question. What is he saying? We've already read the text. Here's what he's saying. I'll try to cover it briefly. We are not owners or, or creators, and we have what we have because God has given it to us. And we are simply managing it. 
None of us, none of us created ourselves. I, I know we feel like, well, I, I've worked hard and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I created opportunities, but just go back and look at the details and look at the twists and the turns. None of us creates. We are not creators. All that we have has been given to us by God, and God has given it to us to manage it for his glory. What we have been given came from God, and he has given it to us to manage according to his word, to manage according to his will. That's all of us. None of us entered the world with anything, nor will any of us leave the world with anything. But while we are here, we have the responsibility of managing what we have, and we will be judged for how we manage what we have. The text tells us there are faithful stewards, there are wise stewards, and there are unfaithful stewards. And as we look at the text, the words bear this out. The faithful steward is one who has surrendered to the master, one who has surrendered to the will of the master, one who has surrendered to the word of the master. In fact, a faithful steward is a believing steward. A faithful steward is a sensible steward, a wise steward. They are submissive and they're serving. A faithful steward is somebody who is using his resources, his time, and his energy to serve the mission of God and to serve those who serve the master. They use what the master has allotted to them to serve others. That's what a faithful steward does. Faithful stewards are connected relationally to the master and they're connected relationally to those who are in the master's house. Look at the text. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? That's not just a physical dwelling. That's human beings. And give them their portion of food at the proper time. So here's a faithful steward. He's been set over um, people to be responsible for them and to serve them and to nurture them and to make sure that their needs are taken care of. So faithful stewards are connected relationally to the master and to those that are his in nurturing, life-giving relationships. He's telling us in the text, blessing will come at the return of Christ to those who are faithful stewards who recognize that all that they have is from God, who want to manage their resources to serve the mission of God and to serve the people of God, both physically and spiritually. And he tells us at the end, greater responsibility will be given to those who are manage, managing, who are stewarding, who are serving appropriately when Christ comes. This is all-encompassing. And the question you and I need to ask ourselves is this, are we ready? Have you trusted Christ? That's, that's at the core of this. Have you trusted Christ? Are you one who has placed your faith in him? If you have, you're probably battling temptations. You're probably struggling. Most of us are. We're struggling trying to live life in two kingdoms. We're struggling with impatience. But we've got to continuously run back to the fact that there is a better kingdom. And I want to be in that kingdom. And there is a better king. And I want to know that king. The third thing that we see in the text is the procrastination of unfaithful stewards. We see the anticipation of a better kingdom. There is a better kingdom. There is a better kingdom, the anticipation of a better king, but the procrastination of the unfaithful stewards. And again, we, we've already mentioned it. You can see it in verse 45, the, the, 
this steward is having a conversation with himself. He, one, one text says he says to himself, he says in his heart, he says at the core of his being, he's thinking internally, he's reasoning internally. And I think we can look first of all at his motivation. There is something in this servant that motivates him to believe that if he completely surrenders his life to Jesus Christ, that he's going to miss out on a good time while he's here. If, if I surrender myself to Jesus Christ, it's going to cost me something. And there are just some things that I want to have, and there are just some things that I want to do, and there are some things on my bucket list that I want to experience, and there are some things that, that I, I want to happen in my life that I feel like my life is not going to be complete without. And so, so this guy is rationalizing in his mind, having a conversation about himself. And not only is, is, are we seeing the, the motivation of his heart where he's trying to stand between two worlds and really feels like in this world where, he, where he's a steward and Jesus Christ owns everything or in this world where he can say to himself and have conversations with himself and take control of everything that's around him. He's saying, I don't want that world. I want a world where I, where I can be in complete control. I want a world where I can be in charge. That looks like the world where there is more fun. And he begins to rationalize. And basically, you could talk to this guy until you're blue in the face. You could talk to the unfaithful steward until you're blue in the face and you're not going to convince him that there is something in the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is better than what the kingdom of this world has to offer. This unfaithful steward has already reasoned with himself, therefore nobody can reason with him, and he is, he is unconvincible, he is uninstructable, and he is uninfluenceable, and those are not words, according to spell check. But you know what they mean. His mind is made up. He's going to do what he wants to do. And basically, he's placed himself above the master. I, I know this stuff belongs to the master. I know the master has given me his will. I know the master has given me his word. And I know that the master has a better kingdom. And I know there's a better king in the kingdom. But I just want to give this a shot. I just want to give it a shot. And he does his own math. He has the conversation, but he does the computation. My master isn't returning anytime soon. Why should I concern myself with being ready for when he comes back? Why do I need to make sure that the mantle is dusted? Why do I need to make sure that the toilets are cleaned? Why do I need to make sure that the lamps are burning bright? Why do I need to make sure that the sidewalk is swept off? Why do I need to make sure that the windows are washed? He's probably not coming for a long time, and I'm using a lot of energy thinking that he's coming back, and he hasn't come back. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 4. Right. They've been saying since the beginning of time that Jesus was coming back. Where is the sign of his coming? And I'm probably standing up here and I'm some blast from the past and I'm boring you out of your skull and that's okay. This is where we are in the text of scripture. And today may be the day. But if it's not for 10,000 more years and you live for 9,000 999 more years, you and I would be better off taking this day and living it uh, with action, with anticipation, being awake to the fact that Jesus Christ could come back because it changes everything about how we live now as we look forward to then. This man lived under the illusion, one writer said, 
that he had plenty of time to enjoy his sin before the master returned. We, we, we live under those illusions, don't we? I, I've got time. I've been hearing since I was a kid sitting in a church pew that Jesus Christ was coming back, and he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back yet. So why should I think that he's coming back anytime soon? Why don't I just enjoy my life? Why, why should you not think like the unfaithful steward? Let me give you several reasons. Number one, you do not know when you will die. You do not, not, there's not a one of us in this room that knows when we will die. I hope you live a long time. I hope you outlive me because I don't want to preach your funeral. I don't want to have to console your wife. I don't like death. It's, it's, it's terrible and it's tragic, but you don't know when you're going to die. So why would we live frivolously and foolishly? Secondly, you don't know when the Lord will return. He could return at any time. Thirdly, you have overlooked the deadly danger of apostasy. To say, you know what, I believe in Jesus, but I'm just going to go enjoy my sin. You've overlooked the, the threat of apostasy. You've overlooked the danger of having an unrepentant, unresponsive heart. You've overlooked the enslaving power of sin. I want to just, the news flash. Sin is not a faucet that you can turn on and off. It just isn't. This is what the unfaithful steward thought. I, I, will enjoy, I will enjoy my sin, and just at the last minute, I'll get ready when Jesus comes back. I'm going to enjoy my sin, but just at the last minute, I'm going to get saved before I die. And folks, I'm telling you, this is, not, this is not the good life. Life in the kingdom and life with this king is the life that you were designed to live. This is the good life. This is the good life, living in anticipation of the king coming to visibly before all the world, sit on his rightful throne and rule his kingdom. Then we see because of this, this person moves into exploitation. Rather than nourishing and serving people, he is abusing and violating people. Rather than using resources for ultimate good, he's using the resources that the master has given him to manage until he comes back for his own self-gratification, instant gratification. Now let's stop there for a second. Let's stop there for a second. Because if the truth be known, we all lean in the direction of the unfaithful servant. At least I do. I just don't wake up every day in anticipation of Jesus Christ coming back. And I don't filter all of my decisions. There are times that I rationalize. There are times that I have conversation with my, conversations with myself about myself and about my stuff. There are times that I talk myself into deserving, right? I've worked hard. I'm old. I've raised four kids, you know. How much harder could life be? Amen. It's just tough. Lord, I've served you all these years. Would you, you know, I, I, I need a condo somewhere on the ocean preferably. So, so, so we begin to have these conversations with us. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that, and so are you. And, and our rationalizations seem to fall in our favor many times. 
And we find ourselves saying, man, I love Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but then all of our values are wrapped up in this world over here. And we, we try to figure out how to, how to maintain some, some tension, and we've got to do that because there is constantly tension there because we are living in one world and we're surrounded by these value systems. But, but I think all too often we may err on the side of being unfaithful servants and unfaithful stewards. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to remember when Simon Peter quit. This guy quit over and over. He's standing by the fire denying Jesus. What did Jesus say? You unfaithful steward, burn in. Right? I'm going to chop you up. You're going to be beaten severely. No. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. That's our faithful Savior. What does he do when he's like, Jesus is gone. This whole thing was a ruse. Three years of just wasting our life. I'm going back fishing. And Jesus comes to him and says, Simon, Simon, would you repent? Would you come back? It, it is our Savior who comes and lives in us, who empowers us, who enables us to be faithful servants, who enables us to be faithful stewards. And so please don't hear me saying today that you just need to try harder and you need to be better. You need to rest in Christ, our faithful master servant. Let him fill you with his spirit. There are going to be times when we are unfaithful. But he calls us afresh and anew to repentance. Come back. Come back. And I hope that you can hear him calling you today. We see finally the condemnation of the unfaithful steward, verses 46 to 48. He breaks it down. All of these stewards here are unfaithful, which means they are disconnected from the life of God. They're lost, they are not believing. And he's saying there is, there is this steward that knows full well what the master wants. Look at verse 46. The master of that servant, this servant who, who took responsibility, who agreed with the master, this is what I'm going to do. But then he decided the master is delayed in coming. He knows the master's coming back. But then all of a sudden he begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful, with the unregenerate. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a, a severe beating. He's still with the unfaithful. And then there is one who is completely ignorant. So there's one that's absolutely reckless and doesn't care. There is one who is careless and not paying attention. And there is one who is ignorant. But all of them are unfaithful servants. You can draw whatever conclusion you want about that. Some would say that there are different, different levels and degrees of punishment in eternity in hell. And certainly the text would lend itself to that. But then he finally comes to verse 48. The last verse, the last phrase is an interesting phrase. He said, everyone to whom much was given... Of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And, and there's a checkpoint. There's a checkpoint. Take 
the time to look at your life. How has God arranged and blessed your life? What is God doing? I had a conversation with a brother this morning, and uh, he, he's here. And so uh, he walked out last week. He was a little stirred up, but he was sorting it out. And we should all be stirred up, and we should all be sorting it out. I'm trying to sort it out. I've come to these texts. I don't, I don't line up with these texts um, um, perfectly. I hope the direction of my life is moving here, but I'm still struggling through it. I hope you are too. And then we talked this morning, and he, he said, um, I, I'm just trying to bring everything in my life. I'm putting words in his mouth now, but here's what I think he meant. Beneath the umbrella of who God is and what he's doing in my life. And so I'm asking myself, whenever God blesses me in my business, or whenever God blesses me or gives me, or I see certain things happening, I start asking myself, what is God up to? What is God trying to show me? How can I be a faithful servant? How can I be a faithful steward in this circumstance? And that's what this text is calling us to. It, it's saying, it's, it's, it's acknowledging God is, God is giving. God is requiring. God is entrusting. God is demanding. We are going to answer to him. I think the variable in that is are we recognizing him as being the master, the owner, the Lord of our lives. And are we inquiring of him saying, Lord, what's going on? How do, you, how do you plan on using this in my life? How do you plan on using this in your kingdom? How do you plan on using this for your glory? That's the checkpoint. Let me give you some thoughts as we, as we close. First of all, there is this pervasive and persistent temptation to live for the now. There really is. We all face it. There is this pervasive temptation to live for the now, to live for the self, to live in self-indulgence. There is this pervasive temptation to use people and things for self-gratification, for immediate gratification. There is this per pervasive and persistent temptation not, not to live for the ultimate Someone has said, don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. But there is this temptation to sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. There is this temptation to doubt what we cannot see or to doubt what we cannot prove. That's where we get to this place of having conversations with ourselves by saying, you know what, I'm, I know what the preacher said, and I know he told us there's these two kingdoms, and there is the king uh, the, you know, of, of Jesus Christ, the king, but, but can I just rationalize and have a conversation with myself? And, and we doubt what we cannot see, and we doubt what we cannot prove. There is this pervasive and persistent temptation not to submit to Scripture or to submit Scripture to our reason. Let me say it loud and clear and we don't say it enough. Scripture is authoritative. We do not sit over Scripture. Scripture sits over us. We do not, our reasoning is not superior to the revelation of God. But there is this pervasive temptation in our hearts to submit Scripture to our reason. Evil is always hunting and moving us away from life. There is this pervasive and persistent temptation to listen to evil. It is quite convincing. 
there is this pervasive and persistent temptation to become practical universalist and annihilationist. You say, what, what does that mean? That means you believe everybody's going to be saved. Or that you believe that there will be judgment, but everybody will cease to exist and there will not be eternal judgment. You say, why would you say that we are practical universalist and annihilationist because we have no concern for the lost? You see, if we really believed that Jesus Christ was coming back, we would be concerned for our parents and for our kids and for our neighbors and for our friends and for our cousins and for our uncles and for our aunts. There is something about not talking about the return of Jesus Christ that lulls us to sleep as it relates to lostness. And we should have a deep, deep concern, but there is this temptation not to believe that people are really going to die and spend eternity in hell. There's this, this temptation not to believe that one day we're going to stand before God and give an account. He's going to be like, ha, I was just joking. So there are these temptations, and I would ask you this morning, what do you need to repent of? Where in your life do you need to repent? Where are these temptations intersecting with how you're living practically, and what do you need to repent of? And thirdly, finally, there is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to be faithful servants. To serve our God and his kingdom and his people. Grace stopped me this morning. She said, I, I, I need you to give a message to everybody. She was joking. And I suggested that she come down and preach sometime. And she agreed to that. And I, uh, I immediately withdrew that request. <laughs> but she said, we need help. We need help. We need faithful. We need faithful servants. We just do. A lot has gone on over the past two to three years, folks. We sent a ton of faithful servants out. We didn't know COVID was coming on the heels of that. We've had two years of COVID. And quite frankly, it seems like there's more to do in trying to do church than we have people to do it. And we need you to serve. We need you to dive in here with us. We can, we can be a, a, a dying church we can be a church that's on its way down and on its way out. Or we can be a people that say, where's, where's, is, where's the rope? Can somebody just kind of move over and let me grab hold of the rope? And we just need you to come and grab hold of the rope and just pull with us. There, there, is this, there is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to be faithful servants. There is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to be faithful stewards. And I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ comes back, you will find great joy in being a faithful servant and a faithful Steward, our connection to his kingdom is what brings purpose and energy and joy and hope, even in the face of COVID and even in the face of death and even in the face of sickness and suffering. That's what sustains us. There is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to proclaim a better kingdom and a better king to those who were lost without Jesus Christ. I wonder why we're so reluctant to proclaim. I wonder why we're so reluctant to invite. I wonder why we're so reluctant to share. 
Do we believe that there is a better kingdom? Because people are wondering. 9-11 hit, the churches were filled up. People were scared Jesus was coming back. They were scared, damn, we got to be ready. What in the world's going on? World War III is, is looming. This stuff that's going on over there is coming to a theater near you and me. So you're trying to scare us. No, I'm trying to wake you up. We better wake up and we better be living for the kingdom. Faithful servants, faithful stewards, proclaiming a better kingdom and a better king to the lost. There is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to live in the hope that can only be found in a servant master. You need a servant master. If you're, if you're in sin and, and you're in the kingdom of this world, you're, 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 being, you're being pushed to the point of exhaustion. And Satan is pushing you with a whip and his goal is your destruction. His goal is your death. He cares nothing for you. There is a servant master who loves and who calls us into a community of loving people. I would challenge you this morning. There is this pervasive and persistent opportunity to look forward to his soon return. And we should look forward to that more than we do anything else. My daughter, who lives in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, is moving to, um, I guess it's called Raven Gap. The school is Raven Gap. My son-in-law's leaving coaching job in Mississippi and going to Raven Gap Nakuchi School. It's a boarding school up in North Georgia. And they're passing through this weekend. And we're going to be glad to see them for a couple of hours anyway. Amen. Now, they're going to stay for a week, but we'll be glad to see them for a couple of hours. <laughs> and then life gets real. And it's fun. But my wife will start this afternoon. She's going to start getting the house ready. And she's going to have a list. Going to get the old rainbow out. It's about 25 years old. And we're going to be, be vacuuming the hardwoods and vacuuming the carpet and making sure everything's clean. And when they walk in, the windows are going to be clean. And, and uh, the light bulbs are going to be replaced. And the carpet's going to be clean. And they're going to, each of them have a towel laying at the end of their bed with their name on it. They're going to feel like they belong there. We're expecting them. We want to be ready for them. Folks, Jesus is coming back. And he loves us much more than anybody that we know. And his kingdom is going to be a great and grand and glorious and joyful, unbelievable, unbelievable kingdom. The Father desires to give you the kingdom. Would you come into the kingdom this morning? Would you trust Christ today?